0: For certain features, for certain explanatory variables, maybe the optimal relationship is linear. Maybe there's just no more information to extract. But we know demonstrably from our own research that there are many, many feature relationships with many markets where if you assume a linear relationship, you're leaving excess information on the table. Hello. And welcome to Resolve's Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, we provide a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. We hope that you enjoy the
1: series as much as we enjoyed putting it together.
2: Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: All right, and we're back for episode eight. So last episode, we talked, uh, we continued to expand the efficient frontier, looking at alternative beta sources, the alt-premium space being something that could take in a lot of assets. And we tend to believe in this linear relationship that the stronger the factor, the better the expected return should be. And we're going to dig in a little bit further in this episode to see if that is indeed appropriate if it's the best way to extract as much benefit from those anomalies as a linear relationship or not. So what is it about the traditional factor betas that is missing?
3: Where does it move from a factor beta to alpha?
0: Yeah, well, I think the factor literature depends on an explanatory variable. First of all, having a linear relationship with price movement. And second of all, applying with exactly the same specification across every security. So you're going to use 12 month returns to rank stocks. You're going to buy stocks in the top 10% by 12 month returns, short stocks in the bottom 10%. And that's your momentum factor. So you're applying the exact same metric to every stock in your ranking methodology, and then by holding only the top stocks or the very bottom stocks, you're assuming that a stronger expression of that characteristic gives you an expectation of the strongest expected return. And I think what we have learned over the last few years is that a lot of the assumptions about how even traditional explanatory variables like value or price to book or price to earnings or momentum or whatever trend, whatever was originally thought to be the case about the relationships may not actually be the case. And that also different markets have different relationships with the same variable.
1: Yeah. And I think value is a perfect one, right? You have this price to book scenario being the the original value factor. For whatever reason, back in the early 90s, the data that one had available to them, they were trying to identify whether value existed. They chose that as a parameter. They put it across the S&P 500. They found that indeed it was explanatory, that high p-value, and therefore value is a real anomaly. Um, And over the years, what we found is that, at least in the last few years, is that people think that price to book is dead. And there are other explanatory variables, like in a price value to EBITDA, price to sales, that have done better. But yet when we look at Japan, the best performing value metric is price to book. Now, what about Japan Happen to be different that makes price to book an appropriate parameter? It could be the way they handle their balance sheets. There's a wide variety of explanations. The point being that the idea that price to book is persistent and pervasive across all market environments and it should be the same across the board all of a sudden isn't true.
0: Well, it does prompt the question then, should we look at Japan as an anomaly or just that the noise in the factor over time has manifested such that Japan doesn't seem to respond to certain value metrics in the same way. And the problem is that value in particular is a hard one to draw conclusions exclusively from the data because you're not rebalancing very often. Like the, the forecast horizon for value is measured in months. And so the number of monthly observations that you have, even if you go back a, a century, doesn't really give you enough data to be able to draw strong statistical conclusions. So one of the things that's, that's important is to seek to make predictions on a timeframe where you have an, a high enough frequency of data to give you statistical significance. But the other dimension of this is, should we just assume that every market responds to every variable in the same way. I'll give you an example from, it's a simple one from our early explorations. So trend, typically trend, you invest in a market if it has a positive sign of returns over the last, whatever, 100 days, 60 days, pick a number, and you short the market if it has a negative sign of returns. Or you go long a market in proportion to the strength of its positive returns or its negative returns. So you're assuming there that the relationship is that a market's expected return is in direct proportion to the strength of its previous return, its previous momentum or trend. And in fact, what we saw is in several markets, that relationship has kind of turned on its head in the belly of the trend. So when a market just crosses from being in a negative trend into a positive trend or just crosses from being in a positive trend into a negative trend, at that point, the relationship is quite strong. There is a strong positive relationship. You want to be long markets that have just crossed from negative to positive. But when that trend strength goes beyond a certain point, when the the signal gets really, really strong, the relationship inverts. And in fact, for super strong trends in some markets, you actually want to get short at some point. And so you can imagine that presents a non-linear shape. It's linear at a certain point, and then it changes direction at some point. So it's you've got a curve. And if you extrapolate that out to a wide variety of markets and a wide variety of different explanatory variables, so think now into skewness and seasonality and carry and other higher orders of the distribution. And then out into a wider variety of less common explanatory variables that we'll talk about. You can imagine that the number of shapes that you might identify as being the right shape to explain a market return can be an almost infinite array of textures and characters.
3: Yeah. I think that's, This is one of the things I think is maybe a misconception or or a grave miss, or I'm not sure I want to characterize it, but we have different markets. Those markets have different participants. Those participants are driven by different factors, the lumber market, the corn market. These are markets that have different participants, different factors, different ongoing speculators and commercials. And so why would you make this broad sweeping assertion that across all of the features that that in this particular market, they should manifest in the same way, that the shapes, in fact, wouldn't be different. There's different regulatory requirements in all of those. And then you've got on top of that, you've got shifting preferences of investors, generally speaking, across cross assets and whatnot. So that one fundamental assertion of this pervasiveness is one that when you poke at it a little bit, it seems to us anyway, that there's there's some value to add there
1: yeah and it's not always the case that the shape is different but still valuable sometimes there is no shape to it momentum doesn't work for certain asset classes in many different iterations of it and so the interesting thing about why the traditional factor investing may work is because there's enough Different asset classes that have these characteristics that when you include them all together in different iterations, if you mix multiple providers of these style premia that attack the problem from a different perspective, that invest in a wide variety of equities and multi-asset classes, that there's enough signal that is incredibly strong that it gives a positive returning equity line versus the noise that confounds it right and the key here is to say okay so that's that's why it's beta we can put a lot of money into it and we can we can capture some signal there the question is where we need to go and find alpha what do we need to do it's the one linear relationship is simple to express generally speaking it's not that complicated to put together a portfolio that way when you start looking at the different nonlinear relationships across different parameters that across different asset classes across different equities now it becomes complex. Now you need expertise. Now you need to do a lot more work than you do from the traditional factor beta perspective. And that is alpha. That's a lot of work and it's in the most competitive landscape on in, in our business.
0: The other um, thing that I think a lot of investors, factor investing misses explicitly is conditionality. So a market may have a positive expectancy when the trend is positive at certain times and a negative expectancy at other times. So as a simple example, maybe a market has a positive expectancy when the trend is positive and when carry is positive, but it has, it's random noise when trend and carry are not aligned in the same direction. So that's a simple example. Or When the shape of the volatility term structure has a certain slope and trend is in a certain direction, then that is indicative of, or has a high probability of leading to certain behavior and different conditions will lead to different behavior.
1: Seasonality and volatility term structure will shape the relationships a bit differently rather than being independent. Oh, I'm a momentum manager. I don't care if we're going into a poor seasonal pattern. I'm going long gold. That's what the virtual momentum manager feels when you allow the process to x-ray the different textures and interrelationships, you actually get a brighter picture of what's actually happening underneath the hood.
3: So seasonality often is sort of maybe poo-pooed in stocks because it doesn't seem to be an intuition there necessarily. But then when you think of other asset classes in the commodity space, well, there's certainly some seasonal intuition behind these items and areas of... Where you have some sort of mechanical intuition, but you're looking to scope the relationship shape, if you will. These things are um, nuanced and complex.
0: So it's important to note that once you move away from simple linear relationships, then it gets really easy to find relationships that don't exist or to assume that you've got a very strong level of confidence in a very non-linear relationship just because you get a really good fit in sample. And the tool set from machine learning is what allows you to identify what the optimal level of complexity is. For certain features, for certain explanatory variables, maybe the optimal relationship is linear. Maybe there's just no more information to extract. But we know demonstrably from our own research that there are many, many feature relationships with many markets where if you assume a linear relationship, you're leaving excess information on the table. But you need to have the right tool set and skill set to be able to identify what that optimal trade off is, right? For those who are familiar with the machine learning literature, this is the bias variance trade-off. And you need the right tools to be able to identify what that optimal trade-off is. And you need new tools to deal with time series that are different than the tools that you would bring to bear in other types of machine learning tasks. That's a big part of the skill that true alpha brings to bear.
1: Exactly. And I think when you talk about machine learning, you've seen a lot of experts come into the market that came from the non-financial side of things that have been very successful at Google or just graduated from Waterloo or University of Toronto, some of the leading areas of machine learning and try to apply a perfectly curve fit approach to machine learning and fail miserably because they got that bias variance trade off wrong. Just doesn't apply to finance in the same way that it applies to Googling a picture of a cat. So there's expertise there. There is danger in being too granular and there are tools necessary to do that. But if you're able to apply that technology to these economically intuitive parameters, then you can find a little bit more extra. And by a little bit, I think it's a bit more than a little bit. Extra juice, extra
0: returns. Well, the real magic, the reality is that for any individual explanatory variable in market pair, the amount of information and statistical confidence is depressingly small, which is why it's so important to have a reasonably large number of explanatory variables where you've got some economic intuition or mechanical intuition that there should be a relationship between what's going on with this variable and the evolution of price in markets, but you don't know what the shape of that relationship is or how it interacts with other variables. You've got a long list of these and a long list of markets that you're investing in. And the secret sauce here is to be very humble about the strength of any of these individual relationships and bring them to bear as an ensemble. So you've got a large number of variables, a large number of models on a large number of assets. And the real juice there is in putting all of those together and extracting the diversity of, and the error terms cancel out. You've got some errors that are going in one direction and others are going in the other direction. And those error terms will largely cancel out and you'll be left with a greater amount of signal. And That's why a strategy like this can generate an astonishingly large aggregate-sharp ratio at a portfolio level when the individual models are just barely significant.
3: That sort of addresses that idea of what the sample size is going to be, and that's how you expand that sample size to get some significance out of it.
0: Yeah, you expand it cross-sectionally by adding other variables and other markets and allowing those error terms to cancel out.
1: When you talk about a junior quant, as they look at the literature, they gravitate towards momentum because it happens to have the higher p-value in a certain back test. That is being too biased. And th- so you can take a step back and start realizing okay, maybe momentum and value are good or maybe momentum value and low vol and you start expanding and diversifying there because you don't know which one trend is done really poorly for 10 years you don't know which one's going to work then you say well how do you define value how do you define trend you find a wide variety of ways that are intuitive parameter sets is it a 100 day moving average for trend is it 200 day or is it 150 day or is it the crossover between a short-term and long-term moving average you create that a wide variety of variables you can create what we've written about a, a ton is that if you want to create a true baseline or benchmark for value momentum trend, you should come up with as many variables that make sense, average amount and get a back test. And that should be your benchmark versus just the hundred day moving average being your, your factor. But if once you get to your ensemble, you have all these different feature sets, then you can start applying the machine learning framework to be able to understand the true texture of all of those relationships independently and interrelated. How do we go beyond that? What is sustainable alpha look like? Do we stop there?
0: I think you nailed a critically important point, which is that the only sustainable edge is innovation, right? It's constantly acknowledging, first of all, that markets change and that there are going to be new variables that come to dominate the mechanics of the price evolution where the last little while has made it very clear the importance that the options market plays in determining the direction of equity prices in the intermediate term. And so if you're not using information from the option surface and from dealer positioning, et cetera, to inform your models, then you're probably a step behind. And so you've got to be constantly on the lookout for new variables that are interacting with markets to change the nature of price evolution. and. I mean, there's other ways you can expand your strategy efficacy. You can add new markets as they become liquid enough. You can add new features. You can create new synthetic markets by, for example, trading the yield curve or trading pairs of long, short equity markets or trading calendar spreads or really the combinations and opportunities are, are limitless. Once you have a general intuition for how to look for explanatory variables and you've got the right machinery to be able to identify optimal relationships.
1: And then what you find is that one of the things that has been going around for the last 10 years is that there is no more alpha. There are no more hedge funds. There's no more active management because if I put a bunch of factor, basic beta factor strategies together, I can explain away 90% of your returns. We found that as you get deeper into this level, it's completely idiosyncratic. There is small portions of of traditional factors in there, but the vast majority of the alpha ends up being new.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's systematic, but it's not explained by the traditional factor returns.
1: And that's the goal. As people go up that learning curve and start getting into our area we're gonna hopefully be, and by we resolve other alpha and active managers are constantly trying to be at the next evolution to create that sustainable alpha.
3: I think investors and allocators also have a very personal choice to make as to where they're gonna wanna lie on that continuum. And they should take the time to be very comfortable with their expectations of where they're going to sit so that they can actually achieve the potential excess returns that come from these extra sources of return and as they adopt them because what you don't want to have is the opportunity for adoption and then abandonment at the time where you're going to have a drawdown because that's inevitably where abandonment comes where you receive the risk but none of the returns and so it really is something that each allocator and investor has to i think really contemplate deeply as to where they want to sit on how comfortable they are with how much economic intuition versus the shape versus the new indicators and things like that these are very inward looking questions
1: mike talk a little bit about swenson and how he's clearly been able to find sustainable alpha through his managers like what is unique about what you've read about him that you feel is a good takeaway for anybody looking to see how they parse out what's good and what's bad?
3: I'm just going from the books that he's written. We all have to take into consideration that those books are now 20 to twenty and 30 years old. So when they were written, they were truly evolutionary in that he was, went from bonds to equity, then went to equity exposure to more private exposure, uh, private equity exposure in the 2000s. And in his selection of managers he was looking for managers who were non-economically maximizing so they weren't looking to maximize their AUM and maximize their revenue they really were craftsmen and he wanted to have long-term partnerships with these craftsmen in the space long-term partnerships with people who were Thoughtful and innovative because he knew and he knows, I think, and I'm speaking for him. So maybe I don't know this. This is my perception of his skill. But he picks up the fact that partnering with those who are innovative and are going to be at the vanguard of these types of strategies are the ones that are going to provide that excess return ahead of the curve. And he's willing and able to take on that potential innovator risk in order to capture that excess return for Yale. The the other thing obviously he did was he was very, very cognizant of selecting the board that he would be reporting to and rebalancing with and allocating to these various sectors. So he had a very good board where he had the autonomy to pursue unique and novel ideas that were ahead of their time and then got the expertise to do so. And that's really hard, right? You're talking about the elephant in the room, the career and peer risk, sacrificing potentially your career if it doesn't work, doing things that are different from your peers. These are all really hard things to do.
1: He got a board that allowed him to hire the manager and not the strategy. But the key here is that he hired the manager, not the strategy that he was running, he or she was running at the time. Right. It's about the trust and the abilities to continuously find unique edges and be ahead of the curve. And then having a board that would allow them to do that and maintain those relationships for decades.
3: Not three to five years, which is what is often seen these days. These are really kind of at the crux of success, of comfort and discomfort. That's why I emphasize that any allocator or investor who's contemplating these types of strategies has to make sure that they can stick with it at its worst.
1: And look, speaking of worst, I think that uh, this sets us up for the next episode, which is we've, again, just recapping quickly, maximum diversification from beta, expanding the beta definitions, using leverage, applying some unique alpha, even with all that in place, you do have these moments of stress in long short strategies and sharp betas and so on that tend to revolve around periods of liquidity shocks, negative liquidity shocks. And so in the next episode, we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to our hearts. We've been talking about it for years, and I think most people are really in tune with it now, which is how do you deal with tail risk and how we should think about that from a portfolio construction perspective.
3: The evisceration of liquidity. Cue the music.
2: Thank you for listening to our masterclass. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash podcast. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. If you're really enjoying the series and learned something new and believe that our series would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes and hit the share button to share the knowledge with friends. Thanks again and see you next time.